being a Jew, kid. I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real episode 540. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we're talking to Chet Zar, an artist with an incredible body of work. After diving into the movie biz at a very young age, he worked for years as a special effects makeup artist, designer, and sculptor in some of the most popular genre films from the late 80s through the early 2000s. He's now a prolific artist painting all sorts of beautiful and terrifying creatures. He was the focus of the 2015 documentary Chet Czar, I Like to Paint Monsters, and is the host of the Dark Art Society podcast. So, Mr. Czar, welcome to Wrong Real. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, this is all the work of uh, Andrew Hawkins, who had us both on a live stream about uh, the 1988 Blob, I guess maybe sometime last summer, and you were sharing all sorts of wild anecdotes from that production but uh, that was when we first crossed paths yeah andrew's the man i love andrew He's yeah i keep trying to get everybody to start calling him hawk the slayer but i, I seem to be the only person <laughs> who likes that nickname maybe just not enough people have seen hawk the slayer but uh, he seems to like it but it, it's not catching on the way i thought it would okay ne- next time i talk to him i'm gonna call him hawk the slayer excellent perfect well for people <laughs> who have not seen the documentary or perhaps have not um heard that live stream. Let's just start at the beginning. Uh, what I find fascinating is how at an age where most kids are worried about their social lives or getting into college or sports or all the typical kind of high school melodrama, you decided to dive right into the movie business on movies like Cellar Dweller and, as we mentioned, the, the fantastic 1988 remake of The Blob. Talk to us a little bit just about what drove you into a creative field at such a young age, but also how you had the confidence that you developed enough of a skill set that even made such a decision possible. Because I'm sure there are a lot of like 15-year-old kids out there like, I want to work in the movie biz, but you did it. So how did that happen? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I, I, I've been artistically inclined my entire life. I had a natural feel for it, so I've been drawing since you know, three years old, I remember drawing. And, um, by the first grade I knew I wanted, I wanted to be an artist or I was an artist. Like I saw myself, that was my identity, the artist. And, um, so it was something I was always doing. It was always happening, drawing, sculpting, creative things. Um, and then, uh, you know, I used to, I found my dad's super eight movie camera. I used to make super eight films. So I was really into making movies and editing. I was really into horror movies and stuff. And, uh, so I was making my own movies and very interested in how, how to, how to make things really. Uh, but then I saw, uh, Dawn of the Dead in, uh, 1978, I believe. <clears throat> and, it, and, and just the effects were just, you know, blew my mind. Um, I saw the howling was the other one. There was, a, those were the two movies that made me go, okay, I got to learn how to do this. So I was like 12, 13 years old and I just started, you know, going to the library back in the days before the internet and you had to go to the library. You had to drive physically to the library, get your mom to drive you to the library and find any book that Did Fangoria even exist at that point? I mean, I, cause I, I was a subscriber in the late 80s and they had so much emphasis on special effects. But in the late right. 70s, it seems like the resources for just how do you make fake blood like, just were pretty yeah. minimal. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, for that, I, I, I subscribed to Famous Monsters. Gotcha. Famous Monsters of Film, which is which is before Fang before Fangoria. I used to subscribe to it. I mean, I must have been like nine years old or something. And my mom was really cool, so she was very cool with all this stuff. But I do remember. I think I got 
into Fangoria around issue number three is when I first discovered it and saw it. And this could have been, man, I don't even remember if it was like early 80s maybe, but it was probably maybe late 70s. But I subscribed to that too. <laughs> so that's a great I magazine. Yeah. To all the good, all the good ones, especially those old ones were amazing. Oh yeah. Um, so anyway, I just decided I was going to teach myself to do it really because I, I was curious, you know, I was curious how they do that. It's, it's, it's so cool. I love this stuff. I love monsters and I want to know how to make them. So I basically taught myself from any books I could find in the library and, uh, throughout high school, I, I had these advanced portfolio art classes where, where it's like you have to get your portfolio ready for college to go to an art college. So I was getting my portfolio ready because uh, I just thought maybe I'd go to CalArts. And, um, but it, it had a lot of like, you know, visual art, but also a lot of makeup effects, masks and stuff that I made and um, <clears throat> ended up blowing off college because I, I – just wanted to be making movies. I wanted to be in the film industry. So I was like, okay, I don't, I know I can do this. I just know I can do it. I know I can get in the business. I, I'm pretty good. And, uh, ended up interviewing at a shop and getting hired, um, within a year of, out of high school. Uh, as far as the confidence aspect or knowing single, being single minded about it and focusing I don't know. I don't really know. I'm, I'm, uh, when I'm interested in something, I, I, I just, I'm one of those people that like, I just get totally into it and I just, you know, devour books or videos or anything I could find about a subject. I really, um, once I decide to do something, I can focus on it well. And when you were working on Cellar Dweller, did it ever occur to you that one day you might become the Jeffrey Combs character in that movie, <laughs> breathing monsters and demons into this world? Well, you know, I I, I used to see myself as as a as a kid. I related to the uh, the um, Doctor Frankenstein when I was little. Like I remember, I would go. This is terrible too. I would go into the the garage. I mean, I was probably seven years old. I'd go into the garage and I would pr pretend to make potions with like toxic, like bug spray, and <laughs> cough polish, anything that was, my dad had oil, you know, from the gasoline, anything that was in the, in the, uh, anything dangerous or fatal yeah, in, in the garage, <laughs> anything period paint. I would just mix it all together and pretend I was a mad scientist. And I had even drawn on the, on, on the door, the, the back door that went into the garage. Like I drew a big, like, uh, mad scientist. My mom just let me do all this crazy stuff, but um, you know, she had no idea I was mixing toxic chemicals. But I definitely related to to that character. I never even really thought about it until just now. Well, I never saw Stellar Dweller until a couple of days ago. But as I was watching, I was like, "Ah, oh, that's kind of an interesting, uh, strange coincidence." That's the ghost of Colin Childress. Thirty years ago, he butchered a woman with an axe and then set himself on fire. It's dark, it's gloomy, it's filled with terror. <laughs> Don't even think about going down there. So why can't people stay out of the cellar? I love to be frightened. If you love to be frightened, then this cellar is the place to be.
terrorize. Her life becomes a nightmare, which she won't stay out of the basement and is snared by the evil Cellar Dweller. For people out there who haven't seen Cellar Dweller, Jeffrey Combs is a comic artist who basically creates this demon that uh, gets resurrected a few decades later by yet another comic book artist, but a very fun, gnarly, little uh, obscure horror film. Yeah, it's a cool, cool, cool little idea. Yeah. I, always, I, I, just, I, I always identified with the, the, the artist archetype, but also like, kind of like the mad scientist archetype as well. Well, you've mentioned your, your mom a few times at this point, and that's one of the things I really liked about the documentary, I Like to Paint Monsters, which people can readily find on uh, iTunes or Apple mm. Apple Movie. They're always changing the name of the app, but anyway, through, through Apple. But your family life was fascinating. I love how you like the grandfather who's always scaring you but chasing you around like wearing masks and things like that which <laughs> yeah. you admit it was like kind of actually like legitimately terrifying not just like fun yeah. but how from an early age your family really emphasized this idea of we're going to give you a lot of freedom but we expect you to work incredibly hard like this idea of basically working seven days a week to make the doors open and i loved how you called attention to that incredible documentary um power of myth with joseph campbell and bill Bo bill mm. moyers where they said follow your bliss and the doors will open but it's not like you can just drift through life and magical things are going to oh, happen. you have to do the work, too. Yeah, it's it like seems a, like from a really young, young age, yeah. you just understood. you got to really put your nose to the grindstone. So where did that drive come from? Uh, I don't, you know, my stepdad was a painter, and he worked seven days a week constantly, you know, because it's a hard life being a fine artist. And so I grew up around that from age seven or eight, Um so that was always around me. I don't know. I, you know, um, my grandfather, the, the crazy dude who chased me around with a, a Halloween mask, <laughs> he was a really hard worker. My dad, my biological dad was a very hard worker. So there might be a, a genetic component to it maybe, but um, I don't know. My attitude was this is what I want to do, so I'm going to focus all my attention on it and do whatever it takes basically because it's not like – it's not like there was this ethic in my family of you got to work hard and everyone people told me that. Nobody ever told me that. It's like my my parents I think came out of the 50s and there was like a ton of um oppression. They they didn't they were like kind of in, during the hippie era they were they weren't really hippies, but they were kind of like liberals, but not super hippies, they're more like bohemian. working class. Kind of, but not you know, more bohemian than not bohemian. But they didn't but, fit into any specific kind of category, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. They were a little more maybe mainstream than the hippies, but they were pretty liberal and open-minded in that way. But I think they came out of the 50s where they felt really constricted. And so when they had kids, they were like, oh, I don't want to put all that pressure on them. I don't want to put all those hang-ups on them. So we're going to kind of let them do what they want, basically, which is, you know, there's good parts and bad parts. I, I, it worked really well for me, you know, it, but, um, so, you know, I, I, I watched hard work. My, my dad and my stepdad work hard. Um, and maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know. I just, I just, I don't know. I feel like, uh, I like, this is the kind of work I like to do. It's always been like fun for me to work hard on artwork or drawing or whatever. Is that what still drives you now? Because I feel like you've got so many incredible paintings to your name and you worked on so many movies that a lot of which people just absolutely adore. What drives you to explore new frontiers? I mean, you've got this podcast the, the, about the, um, the Dark Art Society. It seems like, if anything, you're continuing to put your foot down on the gas pedal. 
Yeah, well, I you know the the dark art society is just something that was kind of started on a lark and um, uh, it just took off, you know. And it's uh, at this point, I sort of feel obligated to keep it going because so many people. I'm sure you feel the same way with your podcast. It's like once you have a, fa- a certain amount of people listening that and they're expecting it, whenever you you know and contributing and appearing, like all our listeners and our and our contributors are they the lines are blurry between the two camps. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Which is cool. Which is cool. But um, you know, I I feel an obligation, and I feel an obligation to just try and I don't know uh, help help dark art become understood more. You know, and give give people that are drawn to this kind of artwork uh, a place to come feel accepted. You know, we a lot of us growing up that were into monsters and weird stuff were ostracized. Oh, it was you know, totally the fringe. P- I mean, in the eighties, if you were, yeah. like when I first saw Hellraiser, I was, you know, I, I didn't even know what S and M was. And like, I hadn't right, even yeah, gone puberty here, yet, but here. it was, yeah, but it was definitely off the beaten track, uh, you know, kind of obscure entertainment, but then obviously got em- embraced. But yeah, I guess in the 21st century, people take it for granted that like science fiction, horror and fantasy are considered mainstream in the eighties, things like D and D or strange monsters, you get your books knocked out of your hands at school. Oh yeah. Or, you know, um, <clears throat> that's the whole satanic panic thing, you know, ask Damien Eccles about that, you know, go, go to prison for it. Yeah. For being interested in this kind of thing. So yeah, it was a different time. And, and, and I suppose culture has normalized it to some degree, which is good in that way. But, um, <clears throat> I don't know the artwork still, in the fine art world, dark art is still, I don't know, not as accepted as I would like it to be because it, or legitimized um, because it's important. I think it's important. I think it's more important. Personally, it seems to me to be more important than ever and the most appropriate kind of work for the times we live in. It really is representative of, of the time we live in. I don't think it's kind of hard to deny that. Yeah, art should always re- reflect the era in which is created. And in the, in the documentary, you talked a lot about how when you first got exposed to Frank Frazetta and Giger and artists like that, how it really just like kind of made your brain explode. And oh. you'd never really seen art like that before. Um, for people who are interested in fine art but don't necessarily know what they what you mean by dark art, who are the great artists of dark art in, uh, you know, throughout, I guess, I mean, whether it's the Western tradition, Eastern tradition, whatever, like who, for you, who, what is, what is the pantheon of, of great dark artists? Well, you know, you got to go back to Hieronymus Bosch. Um, of the garden of earthly delights is one of the classic, there's a hell, hell portion to that. Um, uh, Goya did a bunch of really creepy, dark stuff. I, I went to the Prado and saw it in Madrid when I was 16. My teacher said, Nice. I'm going to show you this little wing. You're going to like this. And suddenly I'm seeing like, <laughs> Jupiter devouring his son and like these two yep. men in mud beating each other with clubs and like a colossus who had r- rampaged through a city. And I was like, this is incredible. And apparently had just been up in his, like in his attic and no one knew it, it, he even had been creating it until after he right. died. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. Um, yeah. It's, uh, uh, you know, of course, Giger, uh, 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 Francis Bacon's another one I would consider kind of, even though he's considered just blue chip accepted fine art, it's dark art to me. I mean, it's, it's creepy. It's creepy and, and dark. And, um, you know, Bekshinsky is another one that's finally getting some recognition, a Polish artist that's rivals Giger as far as having his own sense of 
style and as far being prolific and just making amazing works uh, of art that are really dark and kind of, you know, I, I see as far as contemporary godfathers of this movement we have today, it's Giger and Bekshinsky are the two uh, for me. And there's a lot. There's a lot throughout history. I'm not great in my art history, but those are kind of like the ones that most people know. Well, as the old expression goes, the prettiest music is always sad. And yeah, dark art for me is always irresistible. And I was going through your site earlier today, and I was checking out some of your paintings over the last, I guess, like maybe 10, 12, 13 years. And as I was looking at all these creatures, and I was just you know falling in love with so many of them. But as I was thinking, like, I, I mean, I love Siamese witches and the Heart Eater and Underworld. <laughs> But it seems like what you're doing, whether you're aware of it or not, you're almost creating like a fictional setting, like some hellish demonic realm that I feel like is screaming for somebody, someone in the vein of Clive Barker to come along and flesh it out with fiction or comics Mm -hmm. or movies or whatever. Have you ever thought about taking everything you learned from the movie industry and all these creatures that you've been creating, I guess, since like around like 2007 or 2008 and creating like like a Chet Czar verse of some kind? I've been working on it for the last five years. <laughs> I'm, wait, I'm working on a uh, a book that has to be done this year because I kickstarted it. I thought it might take six months. It ended up taking five years because I had no idea what it was going to be like to try and conceptualize a book. But it's almost done now. And so it's a field guide. I don't know if you know the um, Barlow's Guide to Extraterrestrials by any chance. I have not, it's, unfortunately. It's, it's one I grew up on. It's like a, it's it's kind of like a, it's a field guide to um, aliens, different aliens and stories and movies and stuff. And he illustrates it and has their eating habits and this, you know, like a like a National Geographic Geographic film gu- or field guide. So I'm kind of uh, stealing that idea and and creating a field guide guide based on all of my paintings and and discover and you know describing what the world is and how the characters interact with one another not really story centered yet it's more like the but the it's setting. almost like a d yeah yeah the D rule book is kind yeah, yeah, of yeah. I, mean, I, was, I mean and, my favorite book when i was a kid was the deities and demigods like source book oh which, yeah it had <laughs> totally. all like the various like mythos and that sort of thing and all, a lot of like you know, interesting erotic art in there as well which for as a young kid i was like yeah. whoa you can see your boobs and blah 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 <laughs> But yeah, but it sounds like, yeah, I mean, you, if you had a couple of writers, you could just like make either like whether it's a web series or mm-hmm. a cool series of graphic novels, but it just feels like the all the ingredients are there with all these like, mm-hmm. remarkable looking monsters and monstrosities. Oh yeah, it's happening. It's happening. I just need to, I need to get the field guide done for, mainly for the Kickstarter people that supported it because they've been waiting four years or five years. And um, once the field guide's done, that's, that's the guidebook. You know, from that comic books can come movie web series. Like you said, I've got, I mean, I've thought about all of these, all of these things. And now since I got an Oculus quest Two, of course, I'm thinking about the, it's called dystopia. That's what I call this dimension. So I'm thinking of the, uh, thinking about the dystopia VR world or the VR game. That would be pretty amazing. Cause they, it's like all, all the characters, the creatures are already designed. Absolutely. It's a matter of building them in 3d and making them do what they do, you know? So I'm, I'm there, man. Now for our next item, the royal crown of Beth Mora, a piece from a long lost culture. Lost? Not at all. Very much alive. And I am here to reclaim what is rightfully mine. Call security! 
when our world is threatened. I have returned to wage war and reclaim our land. My forces beyond our understanding. Our government turns to an elite top secret organization. We're moving out. We had over 70 guests reported. We have no survivors. Same story here, babe. Don't call me babe. Hey, I said, hey. Red, we have company. Well, when did this, I guess, trajectory start to take shape? Because as I was revisiting uh, Hellboy 2, the Golden Army the other day, and I know there's that one specific creature in there where Guillermo del Toro said, look, like his, uh, his mouth has to be his, but you can design whatever you want around the mouth. And as I was looking at the creature, I realized it had some stylistic similarities to a lot of your paintings at that time. Were yeah. you already getting the itch at that point to start kind of defining your own universe? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it was never intentional. It was always, you know, when I first started painting, my approach was, how, you know, I'm, I, I'm so tired of being art directed in the film industry and being a pair of hands for somebody else, which is ultimately mostly what I was. I got to design things like for Hellboy 2 and tool videos and stuff like that occasionally. But for the most part, you're, you're being dictated on what you can design. So I wanted you know, to have that freedom, which is why I ended up going, getting into fine art so I could paint whatever I wanted. And when I first started painting, I thought how, you know, I want this to be pure and real and not commercial in that way that, you know, I came from this makeup effects is like a service industry for the film industry. You're providing a service. So your client has to be happy. So I want this to be like real from me, a hundred percent. Totally so uncompromising. Yeah, uncompromising and totally doing it for the right reasons. And so I thought back to the time I felt the most pure as an artist was when I was like five years old drawing and there was no hidden agenda or I'm not, there was no message. It was like you're doing it for the pure joy of doing it. And, and to me, that's like kind of the ultimate way to create art. So I thought, what would I do if I uh, could be a painter? It's, it, monster i paint monsters <laughs> that's and it's at the time you know this is decision happening around two, the year 2000 it was like there's nowhere to sell it there's nobody i knew that would buy it there's no scene there's not a dark art scene there's nothing but i you know i'm testing also testing the follow your bliss theory you know so this would be my bliss so if it's a theory's true then it's going to work out for me somehow well, what you're describing reminds me a bit of what I've encountered with animators. I've done some producing with animation here in New York and how a lot of these compositors, they will fall into this velvet coffin where they're working on other films, but they're not, they, their goal is to be like the garage band independent animator or filmmaker. But once they start working on other movies, then they can get trapped with that steady paycheck and so on and yep. so forth. But it seems like, I mean... There are a lot of people out there who have kind of like a rough idea of the compromises of the film industry, but you've earned your opinions about the compromises over many, many movies. I mean, you've worked on Michael Bay movies and Sam Raimi movies yeah. and Guillermo <laughs> del Toro movies and, yeah. you know, Gore Verbinski. I mean, you've worked for a lot of different filmmakers, and so it seems like you put in your time in the trenches yeah. before striking out on your own. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, but anyway, my point, my initial point was that uh, – when I started painting, it was like, I'm going to be pure. I'm going to do like uh, uh, how I did when I was a kid, which is not think about it and just do it for fun, basically. And I just, so I just started painting these monsters. And then 
without thinking about it, this whole world developed. And and it's like I didn't even realize it until maybe 10 years in and people started going – just like what you said, this, these look like they're all from a certain dimension. Like they know like each they other. All live, yeah. <laughs> or, yeah, or they related. They could be related to each other by blood or, you know, and it's, and I was like, yeah, it does kind of look like that. And so then I started thinking it is kind of like a whole dimension. Then when we went to uh, make this book, Mike Carell, the director of the documentary, I like paint monsters. He's a writer. He's a really great writer. So he, we took this approach. I was like, I need you to help me write it. Cause I can't really write. Um, so he interviewed me about every painting I've ever done. And I would tell him what I knew about the painting and what I wasn't sure about the painting. Everything I wasn't sure was thrown out the window. And everything that I intuitively knew, which I didn't even realize I knew until he asked me about it, we kept it. And that's how we built the the world. It's based on like these intuitive feelings I have about the painting. Like, I know this guy's got bad intent. This guy's kind of a victim over here. He's, you know, just... But yeah. I didn't. It's not. I never thought about. Hearts. But what I love yeah, is when yeah. you're looking at the paintings, <laughs> just as a, just as a fan of this kind of stuff, narratives started to spring forth in my imagination. Just looking at them, like when you see the background and just seeing the character, you can't help but starting imagining almost like a campaign setting for a role playing game or something yeah, like that. Yeah. And so oh, yeah, yeah, I love images that are able to evoke an entire like tapestry of kind of interconnected stories and so on. Yeah. I love that. So I love that about art, you know, that does that. That's, that's what I like about Bekshinsky or Giger. Even it's like, you're going, it gets you thinking like, what is this? What is happening here? And it's like, you're not quite sure, but it like gets your imagination going. It's really also, exciting. What's so beautiful about Giger meeting Jodorowsky and how Jodorowsky was like, you mm-hmm. have a very dark art. And like, you know, he immediately knew that his art would be perfect for the Harkonnens. And I almost feel like a, a filmmaker should come along and steal and or borrow, take inspiration from your, uh, your paintings and inform whatever story they might be telling the same way that Giger's art informed the alien franchise and still continues to inspire the alien franchise to the present day. Well, I hope they don't steal it, although it's happened a few times already. Uh, uh, there's there's things that I've seen in movies that are like, like that looks, that like looks pretty close. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it looks like one of, like one of mine. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it would be nice to get maybe get hired but it, to do something like that. But uh, it's weird. I'm very precious with the universe, with the dystopia universe. It's like, it's like my, my one – it's like my big thing. It's, it's all your Marvel, kind of, it's your Marvel universe. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I'm not going to let go of it for some, you know, movie that might not turn out very good. Um, so, so, uh, you know, if I was to maybe go back to designing for the film industry, I wouldn't be using, you know, I wouldn't be doing, I wouldn't get, be giving them my characters. Yeah, for keep free, the dystopia sure. off to the side. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, just out of curiosity, do you, do these characters come to you like as an image first and then do you, put it down on canvas or do you just start with a blank canvas and just let the creature be, be born as you're creating it or as you're, as you're drawing it? You know, occasionally I'll see an image. There's a painting I did. That's a, sort of one of my, probably one of my most, most well-known images called black magic. It's like this gas mask guy with a gas mask and a top hat and a, holding a gun. And that was the first time that I've ever had an image just pop in my head out of nowhere. I think oh, like I, the Ego Death 2 Black Magic Suicide, or was it an, an earlier one? No, nah, it's the same character, but it was the first one. Gotcha. It was the first painting of that guy. Ego Death 2 uh, Black Magic Suicide is that character in a... Uh, Later in, in his journey. Metaf- yeah, metaphorical representation of the Ego Death experience. But um, so, But most of the time, it's like, you know, messing around and letting it come out. And it's like you get the sense that you really do get the sense. I'm not saying it is this, but you do. You have the feeling that the painting 
wants to be a certain way and you're trying to find it and it's like your job. That's why I think a good painter, you ha- to be a good painter, you have to put your kind of put your ego aside and let the painting be the boss and then you're serving the painting. You know, you're like, I am, my job is to birth you into this world and make you the way you want to be made. I don't know if it's just a weird way of thinking about it, but that's how it feels to me. So it's always in service of the painting. You're trying to make it as right, feel as right as possible. In the doc, you mentioned you're making around 40 paintings a year at that point. Are you still working at that rapid rate? I mean, it seems like, yeah, that's almost a painting a week. And these are yeah, gorgeous, detailed no. works of art. <laughs> Yeah, not quite. I, I've slowed down. I had to slow down a couple of years ago. I was like, I'm going to kill myself if I keep going like this. And I'm getting older and it's just not happening like it used to as far as I don't have the physical stamina I used to. I can't pull the all-nighters. You can't do that for that long or you'll die early. So, Well, speaking I've of been... all-nighters, you mentioned on our recording about the blob that you were pulling a ton of all-nighters on that, even sometimes oh, yeah. in a state of altered consciousness or chemical stimulation <laughs> so, that was only one time that was just one time that was the first time i tried ecstasy that was just a weird fluke that it happened i wasn't expecting to be at the shop it was like a last minute thing and you know had i known what it was going to be like i definitely wouldn't have done it because it was you know once i got past a certain point i was like okay i could do this and i got into it but it was it was uh strong stuff. Yeah, that initial burst, you're pretty much helpless and have a very short attention span. But once it's kind of subsides, then you have that crazy manic energy that can last and last and last. But but initially, yeah, it leaves you in in an altered state that's not conducive to productive work. Yeah, the first thing I did is I was, I had a jar of paint in my hand. I'd taken it and I just didn't, I, you know, I get, I don't know what I was thinking. I was dumb, man. I was like 19 or something. And so I had a, a can of paint that was open and I just looked on the ground and the, it was like splattered all over the ground. And what I realized is that I went, I, I must have went like this uh, and like <laughs> dipped it and like turned to look at something. And it's, and it, but to me, it was like, oh, I just went like this. And, and it just like, it was all over the floor. And I'm like, okay, I got to go out. To, I got to go out to my car right now. So I put it down and left and went out to my car and just sat there. It's like, this is not going to happen. I got to wait for this to all calm down. And once I composed myself and it, I was, I was okay to work, but it came on strong. Yeah. Well, let's talk a bit about that movie. I'm with a patient. There's a man dying in here! Hurry! Excuse me a moment. Is this the hand injury? What is this? on his hand. Nurse! Sheriff's department. Get me the sheriff. It's an emergency. Paul? Sheriff, this is Paul Taylor. Oh, what's wrong? 
I'm at the Arborville Hospital. An old man's just been killed down here. You said killed? Yes, sir. Okay, you sit tight. I'll be right down. Now, who else is involved? I'm with Meg Penny. And Brian Flagg was here earlier. Flagg? Where is he now? <laughs> As a lot of people have pointed out, there are, there are a handful of really great science fiction remakes out there, whether you're talking the uh, Philip Kaufman Invasion of the Body Snatchers or David Cronenberg's The Fly or John Carpenter's The Thing or the 1988 The Blob. When you were working on it at the time, I mean, now nowadays a lot of people love to, I mean, we have so many reboots and remakes and it creates a feeling sometimes of creative bankruptcy where there are no new franchises, but it seems like when you put a ton of creativity and a ton of just passion into it, they can become even, they can eclipse the original films. While you're working mm -hmm. on that movie, did it feel like you were working on something special that was going to last a couple decades? Yeah, everybody really believed in it. And, you know, I was, at the time, I was like the youngest guy on the crew, I think. And it was, there was a bunch of, you know, older older i don't know what they were probably 25 but to me they seemed older and they were like rick baker guys and you know people that went on to win oscars uh bill corso and um uh, mike smith and brian way people that worked on fright night movies the fright night and the the uh lost boys and it's like all these people that i had been reading about in magazines yeah, i was obsessed and, with all those movies as a kid oh yeah yeah and so they you know i grew up on the blob seeing it on repeats you know and they were maybe a few years older than me so they maybe saw it well they probably saw it on repeats too on tv but anyway we grew up with that movie so it was like wow the blob we're gonna get to remake the blob and so everyone was excited and into it and everybody you know gave 110 percent uh and then when it came out it like was a kind of a bomb it kind of bombed and i remember being like really disappointed like you know, I thought it was a good movie. I thought it was cool. I saw it in the theater, and it wrecked me. And there are some moments in there, like when the arm gets pulled free from the guy underneath oh, it, yeah. <laughs> that are still really disturbing to the present day. And it's just it's those practical effects. I love filmmakers mm -hmm. who can find a, a nice, interesting hybrid of practical and digital these days, yeah. because obviously it's hard to go purely practical. But that's one of the last great examples of purely practical effects, where it just feels real it's theirs in mm -hmm. camera yeah 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 now they, they, they especially the blob i mean i was on the there was the shop was weird it was divided into two halves one half was blob victims which was the site i was on and then the other half was the blob itself um and that was uh what's his lyle conway was in charge of that from uh little shop of, he did uh, uh the little shop of horrors audrey too audrey yeah and um so but we kind of crossed over and helped each other once in a while. So it was, it was a trippy situation, but, um, yeah, so we were all like, uh, uh, all about just making these dead bodies and how to make their skin look translucent, which was kind of a difficult thing at the time that wasn't so widespread as it is now using all these weird materials like uh, hot melt vinyl and urethane and trying to figure out how to get the paint to stick to it. So there was a lot of like technical, um, 
uh, uh, I don't know, we're, we're really reaching to push push the envelope of what could be done. So we were trying all these different things that had never been done before, which was kind of cool. So everyone was just completely into it. Well, I guess the thing, John Carpenter's the thing was also flopping and came out sometimes because aren't, people aren't ready for a movie that. that's particularly intense. Like when something's a really mm-hmm. potent brew, sometimes people just aren't ready and they reject it. And then it's the next generation's like, y'all didn't like this? This is fucking awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like, you know, it's the, I, I say, it's like I say all the time, it's like the test of time is the only true test of anything, really. It's like, it stands the test of time. I remember seeing, Leonard Malton on TV, that review, that film reviewer uh, mm-hmm. critic, talking about the thing, and he's like, "It just gore is just not not my cup of tea." So I'm going to give it a thumbs down or whatever. I was like, "If that's what you got from it, you're an idiot." <laughs> it's like yeah, it's so much. The more older than I get, gore. the more I realize that all the great film critics of the past, they had they all kind of hated all the movies that I loved and adored. Right. You know, Roger Ebert like saying Blue Velvet's not any good or Reservoir Dogs isn't any good. Right. It's like what? Blue Velvet? Yeah, are, are we talking about the same movie? <laughs> insane, insane. That, that, that's that's one of my favorite all time movies. Really. Oh yeah, it's fantastic. Well, let's talk about one of the films you worked on a few years after the Blob. Obviously, right now we're still in the in the grip of this twenty twenty one year twenty two year superhero boom that's showing no signs of slowing down. But one of the earliest movies, or one of the earliest modern superhero movies, that oftentimes gets overlooked. Darkman by Sam Raimi. I know. And one of the first, man. Yeah. And so a lot of people, like Batman, I don't think that's one of the modern ones, but Darkman starts to feel like a lot of the, like the formula that was going to come later on. Cause obviously it's like his first pass or his rough draft of Spider Man, which he would do maybe 10, 11, 12 years later. So you're the only person I've ever heard say that. It's like I saw, when I saw Spider Man, I was like, oh, that shot is the same shot from Darkman. There's the dissolve. Yeah, you got the Danny Elfman score and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah, I mean, but but oh. it's like there was there was at least two specific shots that were lifted from Darkman, like lifting from himself. And one was that dissolve, uh, what the, to where the background turns into a, a a graveyard, a cemetery. There's that shot, but and there was another one, and I forget. I just remember seeing it as like, oh my god, and I, I never heard it hear anybody talking about that. But Darkman to me was like that kind of the first. I don't know. It felt like the one of the, one of the first comic book style superhero movies. Who? No foolish heroics, if you please. Is Dark Man. They destroyed everything he had. All that he loved. Everything that he was. Now, crime has a new enemy, and justice has a brand new face. I was afraid that you wouldn't want me anymore. Of course I still want you. The good news is that I know who's behind our little troubles of late. Finish it. He has the power to look like any man. There's two of both sons of witches! But he is unlike any man. I gotta tell you something about me. He's a cockroach. You think you're killing? And he pops up someplace else. In the darkest hour. There's a light that shines on every human being. But one. 
from director Sam Raimi. Dark Man. He wanted to do the shadow, but he couldn't get the rights. So he's the like, shadow, screw it. Yep. I'm just going to create my yep. own character. Exactly. And did something cooler, I think. <laughs> now, as I was revisiting yeah. it a couple of days ago, I hadn't seen it probably in 30 years. And I was kept looking for the hand of Chet Zar and certain special effects. Like I saw some some stop motion hands as like flesh was like peeling off and melting. And obviously Liam Neeson spends yeah. the majority of the movie under bandages and prosthetics. Where is the hand of Chet Zar and all these uh, horrible effects that we see in the uh, in the flick? It was mostly I was in charge of his actual makeup, like his I sculpted it. Um, my my boss did like a rough maquette, basically the idea of like burned teeth exposed. And then it was my job to sculpt that. <clears throat> and then I paint I would paint the pieces and then I would go to, on set to apply it every day. I took one side. My boss, Tony Gardner, took the other side and we would apply it on him in like three hours or something, four yeah, hours. It sounds like and, Liam Neeson was not sleeping much and just like it took yeah. hours to put his face on and off. And he only really has he was so cool, though. a he handful was of scenes without, but like, people think of Sam Ray, uh, uh, Liam Neeson as, you know, he's fucking Schindler's List for God's sake. But like, I know. <laughs> but I love the fact that he's doing this down and dirty superhero genre film before he really started to take off yeah yeah it was, well it's funny because <laughs> i guess this is a good place to tell this story is uh at one point i forget this guy he's kind of like a famous uh horror nerd guy writer guy like I, i'm sure you would know i knew him from seeing him like he he's like a old maybe writer for um uh, 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 Fangoria and maybe maybe even Famous Monsters. I don't know. It wasn't it wasn't Flory Ackerman, but it was like kind of like you know Harry Knowles or some some dude like that. And he was on set just visiting because he was writing right doing a write up, and he was like so impressed and, with Liam's performance. He's like, man, it's like it's like Karloff and Frankenstein, you know. Like he to him that was like big time, you know. It was impressive. And so I went and you know I'm this dumb kid. And I was like, hey, that guy just said you were like. Karloff in Frankenstein. He's like, oh, I was like Karloff in Frankenstein. Well, that's great. Like totally, totally like that's not a compliment. <laughs> you know, Karloff didn't do shit. You know, of course, we as fans love it. But, you know, as an actor, this, you know, like you said, Schindler's List, uh, Gangs of New York. It's like this dude can act. He's yeah. the real thing. So it's for him to be playing yeah. something, yeah, something in a comic book movie, I'm sure was a little bit like you know, uh, demeaning in some way, but he, you know, he'd never, he was always super cool. He never pulled any star shit. He was really cool guy, except that one time it was a long day. He was in makeup and <laughs> he didn't really think that was such a huge compliment, I guess. So what is it like on those sets? Because what I think I love about whenever you watch a Sam Raimi movie or a Coen Brothers movie, it seems like there's this extended family of actors and crew that kind of go back and forth and work on each other's films. Did there, was there kind of a, a sense of community where you're kind of getting to hang with their, their posse while making this flick. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, Sam and, um, uh, what's his name? Rob, his producer, Rob, uh, Rob Tapert, Rob Tapert. They were like old college buddies or high school buddies, maybe. Even. Yeah, I mean, so like long like, before evil dead, they were making yeah, high school short films with, with, uh, right, with, right. uh, what's his name? Bruce Campbell, who, who appears yeah, yeah. at the very end of the movie. Yep. Yep. So, and his, and Sam's brother was in it, had a cameo in it. And, 
definitely um, there was a sense of, of community. Every movie, there's a sense of community. Most movies, except ones with like terrible assholes, directors. Even if the community is just... awful, there's a sense of community. I was in the accounting sure, department sure. on Geely, which is probably the most demoralized working environment I've ever seen. <laughs> everybody hated working on Geely, and everybody knew the movie was going to yeah, suck. And so, but once again, but it still had a sense of community nonetheless. That's true. That's true. <laughs> That's true. It's, yeah, but, but you know, for the most part, that was one of the cool things about at least going on set. Most of the movies I've worked on, I wasn't on set for, but I, I did go on set a lot more than I wanted to. Um, but that's what happens uh, on a film. It's like there's this with the crew actually filming, everybody gets to know each other. It's like a family for like three months. And then you, uh, after you, you know, it's kind of sad when the movie ends and everyone says their goodbyes. And then if you're lucky, you'll get to work with the person again on another film. And then that little family, it's, it's kind of a cool, weird little like, uh, I don't know. Part feel like you feel like you're part, like a carny. Well, it's, you're you're sharing such an intense experience. Whether you go to high yeah. school with somebody or work on a movie with somebody, once you've shared a part of your life where you have a go through so so many like intense life defining experiences, you share that and you, you can never really uh, let it go. Yeah. And yeah. When you bump into somebody years later, it's like oh my god, like we almost like like we were on a campaign like fighting a war together for like you know right, in, in the right. trenches and for I'll, months. And also, every, people that work on films, um, generally, you know, crew people are really great people. They're really, I don't know, I like them. They're like my kind of people. They're really, generally, really nice people and cool and um, uh, open-minded and creative. Well, also, and it's an incredibly physical lifestyle, but it's also a very um, cre creative lifestyle. But it's an interesting <laughs> mix of, like, construction worker and technician. Yeah, right. And Electrician. it just creates an interesting, yeah. an interesting vibe. Yeah, but the, what, there's like the funny thing is that, you know, people that work in the film industry, I discovered, um, is that everybody knows the bullshit aspect of filmmaking and celebrity, I guess, you know, like the idea that most people that don't make that don't know about how movies are made kind of hold everything in high regard. And it's like, you know, we're on sets. We see the, you know, we see Tom Cruise go take a shit, you know, or whatever. It's like, you know, or get mad or, or, or drop it, spill his drink and look like a dummy or whatever. It's like, you, you know, we see you see everybody is like human. And so you realize that whole kind of elevated status of film is uh, kind of silly, really, in, in that way. You know what I mean? Like these people are all. You know, they're geniuses. They're brilliant. It's like, yeah, there are definitely brilliant filmmakers and actors and stuff, but they're all people. Yeah, once ultimately. you meet your heroes, sometimes you're you'll reevaluate your opinion of them once you get <laughs> once you get to know them as a human being. And sometimes your estimation of them or admiration for them right. will increase and go up. But Yeah, yeah. That's always nice when that happens. Yeah. It's happened. I mean, it's like Guillermo del Toro is that way. Same with Liam was like that. Guillermo del Toro is like the guy that he seems like he is. He's like that for real, which is he's like there's no difference from him as a director or a guy as there is, you know, the guy you see in interviews. He's like super cool, his amazing bleak house home that he's constructed with all of his influences is in a similar world to your dark art world. I mean, I've seen some videos of like, he's got all these sculptures and books and paintings mm -hmm. and he yeah, goes, he's got a bunch of, yeah, he goes in there anytime he needs to recharge his batteries, but it seems like, um, he's, he's, he's part of your community, whether he knows it or not. Oh yeah. No, he knows it. He knows it. I just was talking about this on a, another podcast. You know, he, he did a, um, he put his, his collection on a museum tour. Do you remember this? It was called Guillermo del Toro. Del Toro at home with monsters. I don't know if I was aware of that or not. I'll yeah. have to look it up. He did. He did a museum like a. It was. I. I should have looked this up. It's. I think it was Lachma. 
which is like the Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah, I used Cap- to live in LA, so go see movies there all the time. Yeah, I think it was LACMA. It was LACMA or MOCA. It was one of the big art museums. It was in there. It was all of his stuff from his Bleak House alongside stuff that was kind of dark from the like William Blake. Nice. And, you know, like real old school uh, masters, masters they put up in there. And it traveled to Mexico City in a museum and then went to Toronto in, in a, that, that big museum there. And I, uh, after that, I emailed and I was like, man, I don't know if you realize what you're doing for the dark art community, you're helping to legitimize us. You know, this is what the dark art society is all about. And he's like, he just wrote back, why the hell do you think I'm doing it? <laughs> it's like, he's totally aware of what he's doing. And it was like, yeah, that was pretty dumb of me to suggest that. Maybe it kills he- me. He never got to make his uh, adaptation of at the mountains of madness. I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, Love- uh, I'm a Lovecraft fan. I know for years he tried to get it off the ground, but um, let's talk a little bit about Hellboy one and two, where you've talked a little bit about how when you're working as a craftsman on these movies, your goal is to basically act as like like an appendage or the hands of the artist as they're making requests. Mm-hmm. But with Hellboy, obviously, you're working with one artist, Mike Mignola, who has this incredible series of comics. And I've read the first five trade paperbacks, which I'm a massive, massive fan of, and then kind of here and there beyond that point. But when you've got this source material, but then you also have Guillermo del Toro, who's got a very specific aesthetic and he knows what he wants. What kind of input did you get? Because I know you had to work on the Hand of Doom in the first film as well. Mm-hmm. So what when you've got an established universe as well as a very, very distinctive original filmmaker, what kind of input did you receive before going to work on those two movies? Uh, well, Guillermo's always been, you know, he, he knows what he wants, but he's also kind of one of those guys that knows when he has someone good working for him and to let them do their thing. That's my impression. Um, so he's not, it's like, if it looks good, he's like, yeah, that's great. And, and move on to the next thing. Uh, but he might want changes here and there, but he's like super great to collaborate with. Um, I don't, the hand of right hand of doom was like Mike Mignola did like a, a little thumbnail sketch of it with, you know, these curly Q designs and basically kind of just drew a, a schematic quick thumbnail and from that, I just started, I sculpted a little maquette and Guillermo loved it and, you know, give comments here and there. And, I, you know, it's very like, I, I was happy to, happy to uh, uh, accommodate him too. Well, I think the uh, best thing those movies, I mean, what, in terms of what those movies got right, I think if you love the comics, everyone's going to have a different idea of what they thought the movie should be. But no one can deny that Hellboy looked like Hellboy. The, the hand, oh, yeah, the makeup. Yeah. Everything about the character is like, oh my god! Like, all right, y'all got that part perfect. <laughs> yeah, th- this was Matt Matt Rose who uh, passed away last year. He was he was he ran that show. I think he he was uh, Rick Baker lifer, really great guy. Worked on everything that Rick Baker worked on. Um, he brought that show into Rick's shop, and um, I think, you know, I could be wrong, but I thought that he kind of helped get the project started because he knew Ron Perlman and he thought Ron Perlman would be the greatest Hellboy ever because he already kind of is halfway there yeah. <laughs> just with the way he looks. And so he sculpted this maquette on uh, Ron Perlman's, like a full-size sculpture on Ron Perlman's bust. And it looked like, it was like, that's Hellboy. That's Hellboy from the comics, but like real. And um, I think that had something to do with, the, you know, it helped. I, I, I don't know if it's 100% true, but I remember hearing that that helped get the project made seeing that, oh, okay, we, we've got Hellboy. We can do, do that. So that was that was all Matt right there. Um, he was a really big part of, of, uh, uh, of 
the Hellboy look on the on the first two films, you know. Um, yeah, and I love how if you watch, watch the first one, you watch the second one, you can see the evolution of Del Toro because obviously in between he'd done Pan's Labyrinth, and Pan's Labyrinth for yeah. me is still I think his strongest movie. I mean, I, I see everything. I, he I makes, do too. I agree. But Pan's agree. Labyrinth is a, a special movie. But favorite. when you start seeing yep. the Golden Army, you start seeing how cool the elves look in Golden Army. Like, oh, he's you can tell that he's uh, taking a few steps forward as an artist in between the two projects. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to see I. I worked on the uh, doing the pitch designs for Mountains of Madness, speaking of Mountains of Madness. Nice. So, and I read the script, and it would have been so fucking amazing. It kills me. It kills me that that. Hopefully, it'll get made. Maybe it, it might a, get made. It's all inspiring to me that James Cameron could be on board as a producer, and you got Guillermo del Toro, and you've got this writer Tom Cruise who's got the lead. Legions of fans out there. I mean, people walk around wearing like like you know, why vote for the lesser evil? Like vote for Cthulhu. I mean, people love the Lovecraft universe. I know. <laughs> I know. How did that movie not come together? You know, it just yeah, blows my Tom mind. Cruise is the lead, and. He didn't want it, you know, they wanted him to have, I don't know, I think it was a love interest and, um, and, uh, he could have fallen in love P- with a flying cucumber <laughs> making and make it a PG 13 and Guillermo didn't want to do that. Oh so. yeah, yeah. That's not a PG 13 kind of movie. Just no, the idea that these creatures have been dissecting and working on these people. Like there's so many eerie images in there that just are unsettling to the core of your soul. That's not a PG 13 oh, yeah. movie. No, you can't, you can't do it justice, but it was a great script. It was amazing. I was really bummed about that. I forgot what you asked me aside. You were asking me something else though. Oh, well, um, well just, uh, um, I, I can't remember. So I'll just ask you uh, another question. <laughs> <laughs> so I imagine it must have been quite a different atmosphere when you worked on The Rock. Like, uh, what what was that oh, yeah. like? I mean, Michael Bay and Guillermo del Toro, I don't know if there's a lot of overlap in their technique and approach to, no. to filmmaking. And But The Rock, obviously, when you're talking earlier about, like, being around celebrities and, like, this is a, a Jerry Bruckheimer, Don Simpson movie, you know, yeah. Money out the wazoo for anything and everything. Were you guys working on some of the effects of what the chemicals do to people, or what? What, what kind of role did y'all play on that on that movie? Yeah, you know, I think I only did one effect. I can't remember if the shop did a number of effects or not. I don't remember even if there are a bunch of effects in it. But it's it's a, a guy gets. Uh, then the guy get a guy gets acid thrown on his well, face. There's these chemical where, where if it gets released into the air, it a well it um. It will eat away at any materials, but it essentially just eats away at your body just by being exposed to it, and it's awful, horrible stuff. But it's okay. brief, shining moments of horror in what's otherwise, you know, this big, giant Bruckheimer action movie. Right. I mean, it was, you know, uh, there was. I, I did one makeup that I remember uh, on uh, one this bad guy, and at the end of the movie, he kind of like his face starts blistering. Oh, yeah, he, I gets, can't even... he gets the green globule shoved in his mouth, and then like his whole body yeah. kind of like, like gets burned up from within. Yeah, <laughs> but there's this... he vomits, it, it's... and yeah, it's disgusting. <laughs> All I really remember is that when I saw it, I was like, "That's kind of disappointing," because I really I, like subtly sculpted out his features and then dug in for these holes that were these acid holes that were being kind of like ripping away to skin and it really looked good and there's like a bunch of smoke in front of it you don't really see it in the gotcha. movie but you know we shot it on alcatraz island which was kind of amazing um i didn't luckily didn't have to work with you know uh too closely with what's his name the the uh, the director well, yeah, michael bay well but michael, michael bay, bay jerry bruckheimer don simpson are all you know, kind of notorious figures but i found one funny line i was looking at this background information with making of the movie and apparently michael bay said i gotta shoot on this island because this island is so fucking bitchin it's like all right well that's 
kind of endearing. <laughs> yeah, I all I know is that the rumor was that he was a screamer, that Michael Bay was a screamer and I've, screaming at people constantly I heard that's on putting set. It so I was that, glad to avoid Yeah, that's him his style. He's uh he's all aggression and yeah, yeah. It, it, he can be he can be a, a, an absolute nightmare to work for, but having now worked with all these different directors, I mean, has it a change the way you look at creating your own art obviously as a director you're having to rely upon hundreds of people to be right. the paintbrushes but obviously as an artist you have complete and total control like, does it make you appreciate just having that complete and total almost like dictatorial control over how your art will come into being because obviously on films it's nothing but compromises every step of the way from the, right. the screenplay to the direction every- i mean all it is is compromise because you're constantly mm-hmm. negotiating with people yeah, uh, I mean, and that's really the the main reason I, you know, like I, like I said, that I got into fine art. Uh, having said that, I do appreciate um, the idea that, you know, it's when I left the business, I was very bitter. I was like, I'm tired of getting, you know, my my uh, credit after craft services and the credits and getting no respect and getting treated like shit and not having to be able to put my own creativity into blah, blah, blah just really kind of bitter and I'd been in the business for a long time. And then when I got out and I got some distance, like about a year later, I started going, you know, it was a fucking great job. I can't complain. What a fun job making monsters. Had you just hit there total was, burnout at that point where you just yeah, exhausted it was just, or? Yeah. Well, it wasn't even exhaustion as much as like, it was monotonous at a certain point, you know, the, the, they say, they always say, I want something that people have never seen before. And then you give them that and they go, no, 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 make it more like this movie because that yeah. grossed, you know, a lot of a lot of money last year. Make it appeal to this age group. Yeah, make it brand new, but also totally familiar. Can you do that for me? <laughs> <laughs> it's serious, not even a joke. But so, so you know, those were some of the the, the issues. But you know, then again, I got, once I got out of the industry, and I was able to have a clearer vision of it, I was like, you know, I, I was always. I was always talking shit about that, especially when I first got out of the industry. I was talking in interviews. I was talking so much shit about producers and and uh, the money people that come in and fuck things up and have to have their say. And, you know, I thought about it from a different perspective. And I'm like, I kind of get it. You know, these people have a lot of money writing on these movies, a lot, especially nowadays. And it's like if they don't if their movie doesn't make money, they're going to get fired. You know, it's probably at these high level guys. So they're like desperate, desperately holding on to their jobs like anybody else is. So they're afraid and they're, you know, it's a big risk. So I kind of get that aspect of it. And I also am very sympathetic to now that I I have my own business and everything. I understand. And I've done like my own effects work um, over overseeing a crew. It's like it's hard. It's hard to manage a group of people. You know, it's hard to. Yeah, I wish the budgets would come down any just movie a gets bit. Paid. But when I look back in the '80s and how I was falling in love with all these hard R sci-fi and fantasy and horror franchises, whether it's Predator or Robocop or whatever the case might be, but they weren't investing the amount of money that you could basically build your own country with at that time. And I think that's right. one thing we forget. It's like Terminator. Right. The first Terminator was like a four million dollar movie or eight million dollar movie. These were and not it's so good. And but now it's like if you're investing 200 million in the movie and 200 million in marketing, of course, all the creativity and individuality right. gets hammered out because everybody's petrified that like yep. the GDP of like an Island nation is like on the line <laughs> with like, you know, this it's one true. project. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. I mean, that's, you know, that's the way of the world these days, I suppose. Yeah. Global, I like innocuous entertainment that appeals to everybody, but not really to anyone. And I just, uh, I, I 
there needs to be a there needs to be room in this landscape for just more modestly scaled films or shows that have much more yeah, just Definitely. teeth. I, I need I need my hard R distinctive original world. So I'm really hoping that dystopia will become a a thing because when I look at these uh, paintings, too. man, I'm just like, all right, well, this is like what Clive Barker and it seems like a Clive Barker adjacent in terms of how dark <laughs> yeah. and like uh, perverse it is, but it's a completely bold new direction with people vomiting up demons and all. <laughs> and <laughs> and I love how you're able to. Add a little like drama and story. I'm mean, looking right now at this one called The Haunting, where you've got one of these kind of rectangular creatures looking over his shoulder, and how even one of your monsters is terrified by yet by yet <laughs> yeah. another one of these monsters that's like you know lurking in this universe. Yeah, yeah, I love that painting. <laughs> oh yeah, it's cool. I don't know. They're all so fun to me. It's like to me, it's just so, it's like playing. It's creating these paintings. It's just. Uh, it's just so much fun. I just feel like I'm, I'm a kid playing again, now, making see, monsters. It seems know? like periodically a few of these, you're taking inspiration from some films that people like, like for example, John Carpenter's The Thing. Is this stuff yeah, that gets commissioned are... by fans, or is that just something you're, you're just interested in, or how does that come about? I mean, I do. Okay, I used to do a thing where I would paint these small, affordable paintings from st- like classic Twilight Zone episodes, you know, from the 60s or old movies or movies I like, you know, all my influences, Dawn of the Dead, you know, all these movies that I like. And and sometimes I get requests. I see those as separate, almost separate, almost like more of a commercial venture, you know, that, but I love the thing and I love that, that, that creature. So, I mean, I painted that with all the love I paint for that I have for my creatures. So to me, it's like a tribute. Um, and you know, I love, I think that painting came out really cool. Yeah. I love that. The, the thing one, it's like, it's cause that's such an amazing design and Rob Bottin was a genius. So, um, but I do, I, I see, I see those as just kind of a separate, I still, um, I'm maybe not getting the, uh, creative fulfillment, of coming up with this whole new thing, but it's like I'm brushing up on my um, techniques for getting a likeness and my just my technical aspect of painting, which there's a lot to it, you know, stay stay uh, up on all the techniques and try new things out and stuff. So, um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I I think every every horror movie painting I've done is a is a painting I love, unless it was a commission that someone asked me to do that. I didn't really like the movie. Usually I don't do them if I don't like them though. I've gotten a lot of like Chucky requests. And stuff, and it's like, like, I'm not really, into the, yeah, like, I'm not, a, I'm yeah. not really into the Chucky movies. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, totally fair. Well, now that we're speaking about your paintings, it's time for shameless plugs. Let's talk about where people can find your paintings, where people can find your podcast, right. how they can join the dark art society. So for people out there who are, learning about you for the first time how can they take a, a few steps into your world uh well i've got chetzar.com is my broken down half-assed website that i'm really i'm trying to get that taken care of but that's kind of like a home base for but uh uh instagram i'm at chetzar one word c-h-e-t-z-a-r i have a uh the podcast the dark art society podcast where every week i interview dark artists and special effects makeup effects people and just interesting people in general is that uh you can go to darkartsociety.com to find it it's on all the podcast platforms and i've got my personal patreon where i'm posting all of my in progress work and uh giving deals on prices for different tiers and that's uh, uh, a patreon patreon.com slash chetzar 
And then there's the Patreon for the Dark Art Societies where you can support the podcast for as little as a dollar a month. I am officially a member. I joined a couple weeks ago. All right. Thank you. I pre- yeah, I saw that. I, I think I gave you a shout out on whenever I, I always shout out the people who nice. join. Thank and, you, sir. Um, appreciate it. You got a shout out on, on the last one or the one after, before that. Uh, yeah, it's a uh, patreon.com slash dark art society. And that that allows you to get into our uh, private Facebook group where kind of all the the real work is being done to build the dark art community. Lots of artists, all the guests that have been on the show are in that group or a lot of them are. And then the people that support the Patreon um, get in there and share their art and talk about how to kind of forward the movement and keep growing this thing. Well, if you ever need a model for a really weird looking, pale, bald monstrosity, I will gladly <laughs> sit in for as much time as needed. I appreciate it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Chad, it's been an absolute blast talking to you and I hope people will not only check out some of the films you worked on, but also check out your paintings, check out your podcast, check out your website and, uh, best of luck with getting your fictional settings, shared universe, RPG, whatever, whatever, whether it's a game or a comic or a book or a movie, just I, I, I want to see this world start to take shape. And uh, yeah, I'll be, I'll be rooting for you all the way. Oh, thanks. Me too. Maybe I can come back and promote it when it's. Oh hell yeah! No, well, I'll roll out the red carpet for you anytime you want to come on <laughs> Ron Real and talk about this stuff. But we hope you all have enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to leave a rating and review wherever you might be listening to it, and you can always hunt me down on Twitter at Wrong Real. But thanks so much for listening. But more importantly, as always. Onwards and upwards. Ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.